I am a psychedelic therapist, among other things. I came to this uh, because I had been working as just a a community-based mental health provider as a therapist and found that a lot of my clients were really struggling to get the benefits that they wanted from the work that we were doing. And I had been hoping that a new technology would come out at some point that would help people to really address what was going on with them on a deeper level. You're listening to Spiritual AF Sundays, episode 45. The Psychedelic Renaissance, Therapy for the Modern Mind, with guest Anne Metz. You're listening to Spiritual AF Sundays, created and hosted by The Mystic Geek. If you're looking to explore intriguing questions about the meaning of life and our place in the universe, then you're in the right spot. We dive into topics often discussed as sound bites on social media and take a deeper look whether it's woo topics like astrology and mysticism, or seemingly mundane matters like technology and politics, we cover it all. We explore our own thoughts and beliefs, talk to experts, and uncover hidden meanings. These fascinating areas of exploration can help us question ourselves and better understand our world. Ready to grow and explore in your spiritual journey? We're glad you can join us. It's time to start your week off by being spiritual AF. Hello, friends, fellow mystics, and spiritual rebels. This is Jessica, the Mystic Geek, coming to you with yet another perspective on this Spiritual AF Sundays podcast. We previously brought on guests to talk about plant medicine from a spiritual perspective. To hear those interviews, check out episode 18, Plant Medicines and Spiritual Growth, a conversation with transformational coach Troy McFadden, and episode 31, The Spiritual Perspective of Psychedelics with researcher and doctorate Yahan Kamzizadeh. I want to move from the spiritual to the therapeutic. How could these types of medicines be used to not only heal the soul, but the mind and body as well? Ever heard of psychedelic therapy? It's a fascinating and still somewhat uncharted territory that's turning heads in the field of mental health. Before diving into the what's of this topic, let's take a moment to talk about today's guest on our show, Anne Metz. Anne is a psychedelic therapist who came into the profession after working as a community-based mental health care provider. She found that a lot of her clients were struggling to get the results they wanted from traditional therapy and wanted to find new ways to support them. Found out about psychedelics from Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind which led her to seek out training on plant medicine-based treatments. She is a Southern New Hampshire University faculty member and holds licenses to practice counseling in multiple states. Anne's passion for therapeutic uses of psychedelics and her commitment to social reform have led to groundbreaking research and significant policy changes. While not working, she's exploring the great outdoors in her current home of Santa Fe, New Mexico. In today's discussion, Anne will share her discoveries in the realm of psychedelic therapy. We'll discuss the types of psychedelics, their effects, and why they're gaining interest in addressing mental health issues, some of which conventional therapy can't even scratch the surface. Anne also sheds light on the increasing attention and resurgence of psychedelics, but this episode won't be all rainbow colors and mind-expanding trips. We're going to touch on the regulation, control, 
and ethical practices surrounding psychedelic substances. With lessons to learn from the opioid epidemic, this is a conversation we need to have. We have to look ahead too. With the progress underway in states like Oregon and Colorado, the future of psychedelics and mental health treatment seem promising. But we won't give too much away. We want you to join us on this trip. So buckle up as we delve into the world of psychedelic therapy, its benefits, its applications, and its future. I'm sure Anne has some riveting insights to share. It's time to grab your favorite beverage, sit in your favorite chair, and get ready for this exciting discussion. And welcome back, listeners. We have Anne Metz with us today to talk about psychedelic therapy. And we are so glad to have you here today. So great to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Wonderful. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Well, I am a psychedelic therapist, among other things. I came to this uh, because I had been working as just a a community-based mental health provider as a therapist and found that a lot of my clients were really struggling to get the benefits that they wanted from the work that we were doing. And I had been hoping that a new technology would come out at some point that would help people to really address what was going on with them on a deeper level. You know, so much of what we would do would be Related to symptom reduction, it was just really difficult to heal in those deeper ways. And so I found out about psychedelic therapy through Michael Pollan's book and did a couple of trainings. And over the last couple of years, I've really leveled up in terms of what my skills are. And now we're in New Mexico, Colorado, California, um, Oregon, and Virginia to provide psychedelic therapy services. I'm also a professor and researcher. Awesome. That's amazing. Now, you mentioned Michael Pollan's book. Which one is that? Because I know about In Defense of Food, but I'm not familiar with other works of his. Sure. Yes. He actually had a great book that came out. I think it was 2018, 2019 called How to Change Your Mind. And in the book, I sometimes like to joke that it's like Boomer taking drugs. But essentially, each chapter, he goes and takes a psychedelic drug and writes about what the experience was. And he also includes a lot of information about the research and also the historical tradition of using psychedelics within therapy circles. Unbeknownst to me going through my training, I had no idea that in the 60s, 70s, and to some extent in the 80s, people were using psychedelics uh, and psychotherapeutic practices. It was just cool to learn about that history and also start to understand uh, how these medicines could be used. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to have to definitely check that book out. For those listeners who are brand new to this topic or who may have heard things that aren't quite true, what are psychedelics? Sure. Well, most drugs are divided into two different categories. There are the sort of uppers and then there are the downers. And so when we talk about the uppers, those are the ones that sort of elevate your central nervous system. They raise your heart rate. They make you feel more awake, more focused. And then there are the downers, and those are ones that depress the central nervous system. Psychedelics kind of fit into this category where they're neither really uh, central nervous depressants or they're uh, stimulants. And so essentially what they do is that they somehow impact perception, whether it's visuals, auditory perception, or to some extent, like somatic feeling perceptional thing. So that's, I would say, what generally categorizes um, the class of psychedelics. These would include things like psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, if you're familiar with those. It would also include LSD and 
to some extent, MDMA as well, too. And then finally, ketamine, which is what we would think of as a not a classical psychedelic. It doesn't necessarily work in the same sorts of ways, but has some of the similar properties at certain doses. This is a question I love to ask experts on psychedelics. What about marijuana? Because people can experience euphoric states with that. Some people say yes, some people say no. So I wanted to hear your take on it. Well, I would say that cannabis would be considered a central nervous depressant. Definitely something that sort of slows down your central nervous system. And I think that tends to be the distinction. Obviously, cannabis is so strong now that people absolutely have hallucinations and they have euphoric experiences that are similar in nature or in quality, I would say, to psychedelics. Um, But the drug itself is, I think, would be considered a central nervous depressant. Unless, of course, it's laced with something, in which case all bets are off. (laughs) You mentioned how there was that rise of interest in psychedelics in the 60s and 70s. And then obviously we had the whole war on drugs that happened in the 80s and onwards. Why is there an interest in psychedelics now? I would say that the biggest reason that there is an interest is that we don't really have great solutions to so many psychiatric and mental health conditions. I think that maybe 10 years ago, the American Psychological Association just really said we're at this desperate point. Let's consider some novel solutions. Psychedelics kind of rose to the surface as a novel solution that seems like it had some real efficacy to it. Back in the 60s, people were doing research studies on people suffering from alcoholism, mental health conditions, and these substances really did seem like that they worked. And the war on drugs, of course, got them rescheduled so that there wasn't an opportunity really to do research on them for, I would say, you know, 25 to 30 year period. And, you know, the FDA obviously has has sort of loosened that where there have been some research studies that have been able to take place using schedule one drugs like psilocybin or LSD. But those have just been really, really recent and they're highly controlled. So if I wanted to do a research study, I would really need to be affiliated with a big medical hospital. I couldn't do that on my own. Got it. And so when it comes to these types of medicines and these types of treatments, one of the things that I think of is something that still is prevalent within the United States today. So over the last decade, doctors, pharmacies, what have you, really started to prescribe fentanyl. And I think it's oxycotin. I keep mixing Mm. up oxycotin and oxycotin and the other one, which is the love drug. But they would prescribe these things in mass, and then we'd have people who would become dependent, and it would negatively impact their lives, and it's negatively impacted larger areas, almost to the point where some politicians considered also to be a health crisis. What's going on to make sure that we don't have the same issues come up when it comes to psychedelics beyond the FDA being very tightened right now? Because they were initially tight with these drugs. Then they loosened it up. There are lessons to be learned from the opioid epidemic. And I think that really the important piece of that was that Oxycontin was marketed to prescribers as being non-addictive. We knew it was a narcotic, but they essentially, the developer, the Sackler family and the Purdue Pharmaceuticals really had you know, put out this advertising campaign, really pressed their drug reps to, you know, 
basically represent the medication incorrectly and to say that there wasn't any risk of addiction. Right now, ketamine is being used off-label to treat mental health conditions, and it's pretty, I would say, fairly prevalent. And so I do think there sometimes is language around ketamine suggesting that it's non-habit forming, that it's not addictive, that there's no such thing as ketamine dependency. Um, and I'm not sure that's true. And I think that there are lots of examples of people who have really destroyed has destroyed their lives and destroyed their health through a ketamine abuse. So I think that's the sort of first example and really the test case for how we're going to manage this and keep this regulated to the way that this can be a helpful treatment for people without it becoming its own problem down the road. So I think what's been going on lately is that the FDA has been releasing a lot of guidelines and papers out just informing people about the risks of ketamine abuse. There have been efforts from the DEA to limit the distribution of these medicines from we would think of in these compounding pharmacies. And so there has been kind of a shortage of the medication and also just a greater sense of regulation that's coming down where they're trying to get in touch with kind of licensing boards on the state level to just make sure that if people are using ketamine off-label for mental health reasons, uh-huh. that they really have a diagnostic and clinical reason to be using it, that it's not just something that people are like, oh, I want to go and have a spiritual experience, so I'm going to go and have a ketamine infusion. I think down the road, the FDA approval process for the other psychedelic substances that are now investigational products seeking kind of phase, seeking FDA approval, I think those are going to be very well regulated. And so I have a feeling it probably won't be an issue in the same way that you're going to need to meet really strict criteria to access things like MDMA or psilocybin when they're federally approved. And they can only be prescribed and offered in very controlled settings. Hopefully that will keep history from repeating itself. Yeah, hopefully on that one. I actually spoke with another guest a couple months ago, and they were talking about how Texas was one of the first states to start funding research. I forgot which psychedelic it was, but they were focusing because of the high veteran population. I'm not sure if you've heard of anything similar on your end when it comes to either greater public awareness, greater approval, or research that's happening. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things that's been very cool about the process of bringing these plant medicines to market is that the people who have been in charge of it, which usually has been done through this organization called MAPS, has really sought sort of bipartisan support politically here in the United States. And I think that they were really smart and really shrewd to target a population that has unanimous supporting the United States, and that's veterans. And so really the first drug that will probably make it to market will be MDMA, and it will be for treatment. It will be for post-traumatic stress disorder because we have so many warriors here in the U.S. who have experienced combat-related trauma and are struggling with PTSD. And so that's really been the first target of what research and drug manufacturing efforts have moved towards So I think that was a really good choice. And it turns out that both Democrats and Republicans are pretty supportive of of psychedelic research. They've become unusual bedfellows on this one. And I think more states and the federal government in general, there's a lot of motivation to support treatment so that we have better mental health solutions. Because obviously, people talk a lot about the second pandemic after the COVID pandemic. And the second pandemic, of course, is the pandemic of 
mental health issues that have become just so much more prevalent in our society and with young people today. So I, I think we really need some better solutions. And I'm excited that those will hopefully be coming down the line in the next couple of years. What other states within the United States have moved forward either in research or in offering potential methods of treatment? So right now, Oregon is the first one. Back in 2020, they passed a statewide referendum called Proposition 109, which set up the legal structure for community-based psilocybin therapy services. They had a couple of years to get everything in place. And then starting in January of this year, they began licensing not only facilitators, but also treatment centers. And so now in Oregon, it is possible to go and have a psilocybin experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be a mental health treatment. It's just generally offered as something that can be for personal growth purposes or for mental health reasons. It's really not using the medical model on that. My understanding is that there's a long wait list to get in for services in Oregon. There's definitely going to be a bottleneck anywhere that they start to do this. But I think that's really become obvious with the training, the education, the licensing that is all going into it. Because it's very different than cannabis, where there was your local cannabis store on the corner. This is very tightly regulated that everything is through the state. So it's, yeah, it's just smaller but it seems like it's there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. And Colorado is trailing not too far behind. They're setting up their own provisions for psychedelic services within the state. Colorado also has made movements in the general direction of decriminalizing what we would think of as uh, plant medicines. So that's another part of the law, too, is that it will be legal for people to possess psychedelics that are plant-based and also to engage in what we would call social sharing. So not drug dealing, but, you know, your friend gave you some mushrooms, you're not going to mm-hmm. get arrested for it. Um, so that's what's happening in Colorado. California has a couple of other things on the horizon. Massachusetts does as well, too. So just there's a lot of movement and I'm sure exciting uh, questions will be on the ballot for a lot of folks who might be listening. Indeed. And I agree. I feel that anytime we're adding in these medicines in our societal system, it's important to recognize how others who may have tried to be on the forefront on it got incarcerated as a result, which is what we saw also with cannabis. And hopefully we can start seeing things like not only decriminalization, but also expunging of records as this becomes more legal. You mentioned something on the Oregon side that I just want to double check on. Did you mention that they are doing community-based treatments? Yes. So community-based treatment is what's going on in Oregon. And what I mean by that is it is set in contrast to what we would think of as the medical model. The medical model, the FDA approval of MDMA for PTSD essentially means that someone is going to need to have a psychiatric diagnosis of a certain condition in order to get a prescription for MDMA treatment. In Oregon, it's much more broad-based than that. And so basically anyone who's, I believe, over the age of 21 is eligible for psilocybin services in the state. You just have to get off the waiting list and be able to afford it. So that's a different take and I think is an important nod in the direction of, you know, psychedelics being not only useful for mental health treatments, but also for spiritual growth and Mm -hmm. for 
enhancing our sense of consciousness and our connection to other things, that there are a lot of a lot of benefits that come from these medicines that aren't necessarily tied to traditional symptoms. When we get to a point where the medicines we take cause us to break away from our normal train of thoughts, that's where some of that spiritual growth has a chance to happen. Granted, you got to do the work after when your brain resets and you're back in reality, but at least it's a helping hand in there. What type of training do these people have to do to be able to provide community-based treatment? I'm guessing it's fairly extensive. The law itself was passed such that the only requirement was the completion of, I think it's a 160-hour training program, and it didn't have any requirements around education or background or experience with mental health. It has been transferred to the different educational programs that are out there to make decisions about who they would like to take into their program. And so that's where there has been, I think, an increased focus on making sure that the people who are invited into these facilitator programs are people who are appropriate to be working with people in these very vulnerable states. Because obviously, a 160-hour training program is not going to be enough time to really learn how to manage these situations. You know, you think about the average LCSW, the average counselor, they've been in school for three years. Someone who's a clinical psychologist, probably around five years. So there's really a lot of a background knowledge that I think is assumed and is needed in this situation. The training program itself is only 160 hours. And at the end of it, you basically take a licensing exam. And if you pass it, then you're eligible to be a facilitator. But in order to get into those programs, you might have need to have a little bit more training and background. And you said 160 hours. It seems like a lot, but someone working a 40-hour work week, that's for weeks of training, which may feel like a lot, but it's not a lot in the grand scheme of things when you think about how much time, again, as you shared, like social workers or physicians have to go through because you're not only dealing with having to understand the physiology, but Mm -hmm. also the potential reactions. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I do think that Things can go wrong and being able to have the wherewithal and the kind of clinical judgment, I think, to be able to make decent decisions in sort of emergency situations Mm -hmm. is kind of part of what part of what's needed there. But I'm optimistic that the self-governing of these educational organizations will really make sure that they're only letting in people that are good and are only certifying people that are ready to practice in the field. Indeed, I have my fingers crossed as well. Uh, And thank you so much for being here today and sharing your knowledge on this. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we go? Sure. I would just encourage anyone who is interested um, to ask a lot of questions and to come at this with curiosity, but come at it with a little bit of skepticism too. So if you hear of someone who's an underground guide or someone just make sure that you're finding out a little bit more because folks who are involved in psychedelic therapy, you're in a really vulnerable state and you just want to make sure that the people that you're working with are good, ethical people who have your best interest at heart. And if you can find that, it can be a very profound way of healing. And for a lot of people, I think one of the most impactful experiences of their lives. Indeed. 
And where can people find you online? Sure. You can find me at my website. It's annmetz.com, Ann with an E, or you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Dr. spelled out Metz, M-E-T-Z. So yeah, look forward to connecting with folks. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for being here today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. What an insightful discussion. Let's recap. We talked with psychedelic therapist Anne Metz about the fascinating world of plant medicines as an option for mental health treatment. We delved into Anne's journey to becoming a psychedelic therapist, the understanding of these medicines, and the resurgence of interest in them. We also talked about the regulation and control of psychedelic substances, their future in the field of mental health, and the current state of psychedelic therapy in different states. Throughout the conversation, Anne shared valuable insights and information about psychedelic therapies' benefits and potential risks. She also discussed the importance of responsible use and the need for proper training and regulation in this field. I highly encourage you to re-listen if you missed any part of this episode. Anne provided a wealth of knowledge and shared her personal experiences that shed light on the potential of psychedelic therapy. Do you know someone who would be interested in exploring alternative approaches to mental health and therapy? Maybe someone who has tried traditional approaches to therapy but is struggling to see results? I'd love for you to share this episode with them. It could be a great starting point for them to learn more about this emerging field. And that's going to wrap up this episode of Spiritual AF Sundays. And remember to approach topics like psychedelic therapy with both curiosity and skepticism. Ask questions, do your research, and ensure that you're working with ethical and knowledgeable professionals if you decide to explore this path. Healing can be a profound experience, and it's important to prioritize your well-being and safety. That's all for now. Have a spiritual AF week. Thank you for joining us for Spiritual AF Sundays. This show is hosted by the Mystic Geek, that's me, Got comments or questions from today's episode? You can either email me at jess at themysticgeek.com or send me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash themysticgeek. Don't worry, I'll put the link in the show notes. Help others start off their week with a spiritual AF Sunday by sharing this episode with them. Also, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts help spiritual seekers find our show. So do the thing. <laughs>